0: or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey. Welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. I am super excited about today's episode. I am interviewing two very amazing experts on aging and elder care and mental health care as you age, etc. So first, I'm going to introduce them one by one. But first, we're going to start with Amanda Lambert. Amanda is the owner of Lambert Care Management, providing care management and consultation services to older and disabled adults. She has worked in the field of geriatrics for over 20 years in mental health, home health, and guardianship. Amanda is co-author with Leslie Eckford of Choose Your Place, Rethinking Home as You Age, Aging with Care, Your Guide to Hiring and Managing caregivers at home and beating the senior blues how to feel better and enjoy life again. She is also a freelance writer having written scores of articles on aging for a number of national companies. Amanda is a certified care manager, aging life care professional, and a certified master guardian emeritus. I think I said that right. (laughs) She has a particular interest in healthy physical and mental health as we age. So Amanda, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Erin. Delighted to be here. And now we have Leslie Eckford. She is a licensed clinical social worker and RN with a long practice in mental health and geriatric health. She is a blogger and co-creator of mindfulaging.com and co-author with Amanda Lambert of the three books that I mentioned previously. She has been a long distance caregiver for her parents while raising her now almost grown children. Leslie believes the empty nest is the empty next. And I love that. So Leslie, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Erin. We're delighted to be here with you.
0: I can't wait. So I'd love to just kind of, before, you know, we get into any of, of the topics that I mentioned previously, I'd love to get into just how you two got connected into this. And, and either one <laughs> of you can respond to that question.
1: Go ahead, Leslie. Tell how we Okay. <laughs> well, we both had worked on the inpatient psych unit at the University of Utah, but at different times. We'd kind of heard about each other from different staff members, but we'd never met. I had moved around to different states and I came back to Utah and I was working on a, a rehab unit with older adults. And Amanda had just started at a fantastic mental health program called the master's program. And she was a program designed for people 55 and older to help with their mental health needs, which wasn't literally non-existent where we lived at that time. So she comes in to do some marketing and she mentions that she was working with someone that I knew. And I said, Hey, let me write a note to that friend who turned out to be the supervisor at that Fantastic unit, and I got a job working with Amanda at that fantastic unit. We really clicked, and just the rest of history. The
2: and then for some reason, we decided to write three books. I don't yeah, know. That was that the happened. most insane <laughs>
0: part. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, just the fact that you wrote, like you said, three books together. I've always, I was reading a, something the other day that was written by two authors. And I just thought, how do you, I mean, that take, it's almost like double work, right? Because is it, well, is it double work or does it save you work? I don't know. You know, I think it's half the work. Okay. Yeah. Honestly. I
2: mean, I would probably say with collab, with good collaboration, which we clearly have, I think, you know, we depend on each other. And so it's sort of divide and conquer. That's how I look at it. So I actually think it's been easier in some ways, certainly more interesting than writing something on your own where you're just kind of out there, you know, voicing your opinion, but you have no feedback on what you're doing. And so I think we're good at giving each other feedback. So yeah, Leslie and I are, I think we're both very passionate about aging, about, um, you know, healthy aging, successful aging. So yeah, that's kind of our passion and we share
1: that. Yeah, Yeah, I'm Oh, sorry. The other thing is, Amanda and I are both super naive and excited enough about a topic to say, why don't we write a book about it? that's a great idea. We have no idea how hard it is, how many blocks are in the road, but we're just going to write that book, you know, and that's what we've done three times.
0: I And your first one, which one is your first one? Is that the um, aging with care? Is that the first one? The
1: first one is
0: Beating the Senior Blues, and that's
1: when we worked together at this fantastic mental health program for older adults, and we were literally in a team meeting, and an intern came in and said, oh, I was looking for a book for older adults who have depression or anxiety, and there just isn't anything, and Mm -hmm. we said, let's write it, and then we did.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm excited to touch on that because, you know, I've had a lot of child psychologists, child psychiatrists, you know, come on the show and talk about the epidemic of anxiety and depression in younger children, which is definitely a concern. But I think when we focus so much on that conversation, we forget the flip side and that is what's going on with our brains as we age. And so I'd I'd love for you guys to break that down a little bit and, and what maybe even some statistics on mental health for aging adults, like what's, what's going on there? What are we seeing right now as when it comes to mental health and the older population?
2: Well, I think, you know, what we're seeing, I somehow in my own mind and Leslie can speak to this, I have to divide that answer into pre pandemic and kind of, I would normally say post pandemic, but that's not the case. So I think there's been a, a, a spotlight on older adults, clearly due to the disproportionate number of older adults who in nursing homes contracted COVID. But I think there's also been more of a focus on isolation Hmm. and how that affects older adults. And there was some of that before, but now with, um, with the pandemic and the shutdown of senior living communities, I think that has really helped people to see how important social connections are for mental health and older adults. And without that social connection, it's been pretty devastating, I would say. I don't know, Leslie, if you have something to add. to that. I
1: think you're really bringing up something important here, which is the stereotypes that we have of older people and especially around their mental health. I know that when I was younger, we just thought of old grumpy people. And while some of that can be true. Any stereotype is based on some small part of truth. But the fact is that old people, aging adults, have always been expected to suffer their mental health quietly. Hmm. They are not expected to talk to their children and grandchildren about how sad they feel. In fact, that's almost not allowed. And I think... We're coming more into a time when we're asking people how they're doing, how, you know, certainly when you go to a doctor's office now, everybody gets the standard 10 or 12 questions about, you know, you're, have you had thoughts about uh, hopelessness? Have you had thoughts about suicide? We're all getting that, but I'm almost afraid that that's become the too pat to um, just everyone nods their heads and says, no, 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 no. But it is a possible open door for people who really have never been asked that before. And that includes a lot of older adults. And I think
2: Leslie, that is such a great point. And I would add to that, that, you know, when you were talking about sort of the grumpy stereotype, well, I think that depression and anxiety manifest differently with older adults. So that it manifests as like pain or irritability or um, you know some of the typical signs of depression, but people still don't say I'm sad or I'm depressed because of the stereotype of that of those particular words. So you, I think you kind of have to look at other areas of functioning with older adults and say, hey, what's really going on here? You know, why is this person irritable? Why are they complaining about pain? Why are they mad at me? You know. Why are they taking everything out on me? And, and so I think you kind of have to look underneath that.
0: Yeah, that is such a good point. I'm so glad you, that you brought that up about looking underneath those behaviors and seeing what's going on. And I want to pause and hold that thought and take a second and thank our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Sleep. Number. Now, I have gone on and on about the importance of sleep for your mental health and well being. Sleep is pivotal to everything that we do and the decisions that we make, and that is why I love my sleep number bed. My sleep number is 40, and I was just looking at some of my sleep IQ data, and it looks like in August my sleep IQ went down a little bit on average, and that has to do with me having a puppy. <laughs> but even having a puppy and experiencing all kinds of life transitions recently has just reminded me the importance of establishing a consistent bedtime and wake time routine and how quality sleep really does make a difference and with my sleep number bed I am getting that quality sleep I love that I can adjust my bed I can I can adjust for my side of the bed to have a different mattress firmness than what my husband likes and so both of us are getting better sleep because we both have the type of mattress that fits our needs best. I love that it tracks my breath rate. I love that it tracks my heart rate variability and that it tracks my heart rate as well because those are all such important indicators that tell me if I am truly in rest and digest mode, which if you've been listening to this podcast, that's important sleepers who routinely use their sleep number 360 smart bed features and sleep iq technology get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year i can definitely tell that my sleep quality is improving over time even in spite of all of these crazy life transitions that we're experiencing and that is why i cannot talk enough about how amazing the sleep number bed is proven Quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Special offers now available for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash wholeness. That's sleepnumber.com slash wholeness. Now, Amanda and Leslie, we are talking about depression and anxiety and older adults and how it manifests differently. And I think it's interesting as as you're describing it, it, it kind of reminds me of my own kids and how when my kids are anxious when and they're little, sometimes it shows up as a stomach ache. sometimes it shows up as a headache. And so what I'm hearing you say is that with older adults, we're not just asking, you know, how's your mental health? How's your emotional health? It's showing up in other ways.
1: And so many people will simply intellectualize what they're feeling. I noticed myself say something recently where I was describing a feeling, but I was saying it as a thought. And it really is hard to separate those things out. And you brought out, you know, the stomach aches. There's, you know, certainly many older adults who are dealing with chronic illnesses, but Sometimes that illness becomes their whole self. And they're not even encouraged by their medical uh, healthcare providers to really separate that out to say, you know, because, you know, their medical provider has so little time to deal with them that they're just, they too are focused on, okay, let's talk about that pain, rate that pain but we're not really saying, and other than that, how are you doing? We're not really taking that time unless the person is a geriatrician, which Amanda and I are very fond of people who specialize in the medical care and health care of older adults. They take the time.
2: You know, and I think sometimes we really underestimate what it's like because we're not there yet to get older and to deal with not just chronic medical problems, but even like, let's say, you know, when when you're younger, you know, you may um, break something or have a sprain or have an infection or an illness, and you just bounce back. You know, when you're older, you you don't bounce back. And as I've gotten older, I found that I'm kind of less resilient and less, um, you know, tolerant of when I'm kind of down and out and I realize that that's probably just a precursor to what people feel when they get older. And so I think that people, and back to your point, Leslie, older people don't know how to cope or deal. They're not taught how to deal with injury or illness or setbacks. And there's this sort of disempowering feeling like, well, I don't have the ability. I don't have the confidence. I don't know how to feel better, what I can do for myself. So I think that's a lot of it too. It's just feeling like you don't have control.
0: I mean, where's the control in your life? That brings up a really great question. How how do we, and I'm thinking even for myself and for listeners who I'm transitioning into probably the second phase of my life. And, but my parents, you know, I'm seeing my parents, my friend's parents, they're all starting to suffer from a lot of things that, oh gosh, here we are, you know, like, so, so how do we, help that transition in, in the control that you're speaking of? Like, is there a way that, that we as children can be supportive? And then how do you advocate for yourself when you're going through that? I mean, I I think that's just a lot of layers of questions there that I have for you. (laughs) It is. And, and
1: I really think that the focus of maintaining the intergenerational ties is so important. Um, I I think about people as you're describing your own life. You have so many things going on. You have children, you have your career, you have a relationship, you have a home that needs to be maintained. All of these things, daily life, daily meals, these are all activities that require your attention. And then... Some of us who may not live in the same town or even the same state as our parents, as they're starting to hit these markers of aging, that compounds it because you don't notice these subtle changes. Um, Amanda and I often notice people who may have an older person who has an adult child who lives in town. And then the out-of-town adult child comes for a visit and the out-of-town adult child is like, why haven't we taken care of? Mom's not eating. Dad fell and nobody told me, you know, all these, why why is there mail all over the dining room table? And the in-town child hasn't really picked up on it because they may see their parent on a regular basis, but these things just grow very slowly until there's a crisis. But the out of town child often feels very indignant. Why aren't we taking care of mom and dad? You know, so being a person with so many things that are on your plate that you're responsible for, it is very difficult to catch those changes that are happening. And it all kind of always boils down to communication. Those quick little phone calls that you have with your, what I would call middle old parents. They're not quite old, old, but they're getting there. Really taking a deep breath. And after you go through all your report of how everything is going in your life, just say, but I really wanna know, how are you doing? What's, what's happening with you? Do you have any concerns that you wanna tell me about? Just taking that time. Okay, that's, I think, a really, really a foundational piece to making this transition work for everybody.
2: And I would agree. And if, if possible, I think visits are just tell you so much about how, how older people are doing. And when you ask the question, Aaron, of like, how do we advocate for our older, for our elders, um, very carefully, <laughs> you know, It. I mean, I think every, everybody's different, but I think you have to be careful not to go in like the bull in the China shop and um, just take over and, and start to tell an older person what they need to do. So it's a, it's a delicate balancing act of making it their idea of giving them suggestions, making um, paving the way for, for things to happen, but being very careful not to take over. Um, I found very few people that really like that approach, but I think if you can do a home visit on a regular basis, that will tell you so much you know, just take a quick look in the fridge, look in the cabinets, you know, see if the house looks different than it normally does. Is it normally neat and tidy? And then suddenly, like Leslie says, there's mail all over the table and things are disorganized and not being kept clean. There are maintenance issues. So those are big red flags.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, It's so good because I think it's hard for us the quote younger ones, right. To transition because we are the ones that have always been taken care of by our parents. And so now there's a Mm -hmm. switch. And I think it's hard for me to wrap my brain around the fact that, Oh, I need to be on the lookout. And I watched my mom go through this with my grandma. She lived with us for gosh, for, for a really long time. And I watched her decline um, until she finally ended up going into separate, a separate care facility. But my mom really I think that was hard for her because it was like oh wait my mom always took care of me now I'm taking care of her but like you said there are boundaries and so you don't want to what was it you said the bull in the china shop you don't want to say well this is what you're supposed to do this is because I mean it's oh it's just so it it's hard it's really hard and you know I think
2: sometimes uh, depending if you can get other healthcare professionals involved you know like through home health or If you have a really good geriatrician, older adults will, you know, there's so so much respect um, for the medical profession. If you can get a healthcare professional to give the advice or make the suggestion, sometimes um, that will be accepted a lot more easily than than coming from an adult child for the same reasons that you just mentioned, Erin. You know, it, it it's such a weird transition to to make in your life, you know, to have that role reversal. And it's just not comfortable. You know, it's just, it's awkward and it's confusing. And, you know, I'm going through this now with my parents and I never know how far to go. And then I take a couple of steps back and then, you know, I have to take three steps forward. And it's just, it, it's, it's almost like you have to have a very sort of fine tuned feeler for how things are going because things are not static. You know, mm-hmm. thing, it, it's not a static situation. It's always changing. And I think you have to be very flexible and kind of roll with the punches, so to speak. And if, if um, you know, if your parent gets mad or they get irritable or they push you back, you know, it's important not to be reactive if you can if you can help it, because it's not coming from a place of. It's not coming from a place of um, not loving you or caring about you. I think it gets back to that control again. It's that way that people have of expressing themselves.
1: I think you bring up a really good point, too, Erin, about how this feels so strange. And it is about our roles in the family. As we're growing up, our parents are everything. They are the all-encompassing power in our life, you know, until we hit a point where we have to rebel. And that's really what our experience is with a change in a relationship is rebellion and moving forward. And not everybody goes through a, you know, a dramatic rebellion, but there comes a point in your in your mind, in your awareness that you are a separate person and that you must make decisions on your own. The role of your parent then becomes one to step back and that's what we tend to be in the midst of enjoying when our parents are starting to change. And and we don't often just have a little talk with ourselves and say, ah, now the roles are changing and I am the one who needs to step forward to take care of them. No, in our feeling state, we're like, mom, come on, get a grip, you can do this. Meanwhile, I have this, we really, don't always have that aha moment of I, my responsibilities to my parent are changing. And believe me, your parents are not having that aha moment very comfortably either. Um, again, with all of our different personalities, we can really have some resistance. And uh, you know, you may not be at this stage yet, but I always, like to mention this story of realizing that my father was no longer safe to drive and having, you know, I put my nursing cap on and very authoritatively said, no more driving for you, hand over the keys. Well, that didn't go over very well. (laughs) My father uh, continued to insist on driving and for two years, he didn't really speak to me. He'd answer the phone. Hello, how are you? Here's your mother. So that was not my best or most successful way of dealing with my dear old dad. And so I'm just giving you the idea that this change happens on both, for both parties. Your parents have to accept that they need some help. Some parents are great with this very easy transition. Others, not so much.
0: Yeah. I, and it's, it's interesting. And I think the level of there's sympathy, but there's no empathy because we, as the children aren't there, <laughs> we don't know what that's like. And even just going back to the example of, of the child that doesn't live near parents, like, oh, it's, you know, I think trying to dig into empathy when you don't have personal experience to that that's that's where i think many of us get stuck early on as we see our parents age cuz it's like i want to keep things the same i don't want them to change i don't want them to decline i i don't i don't want to lose them right and so seeing any kind of a change is scary
2: you know and the other part of that too that i think we don't talk about a lot is the fact that we think about our own aging. And we think, is this, yeah, is this what's going to happen to me? Is this what I'm looking towards? And I wanted to bring up one other thing um, that I thought of, Erin, when you were talking, is that, you know, if if there have been underlying sort of emotional, an emotional landscape with either or both of your parents that has been difficult growing up, In my experience, that doesn't really change as they get older. And in some ways it's amplified. Hmm. So some of those, and maybe some of those have been kind of put to rest, you know, you get on with your life and then your parents get older and they need you. And those kinds of conflicts and challenges uh, can often, I think, come to the surface. And so just when you thought everything was okay, it's not necessarily um, because all of those things were still there. And I think that um, those can get somewhat exaggerated. And so I think it's important to kind of just be aware and look out for those and know that it's going on. Know that maybe your response isn't a response to the actual situation, but a response to an old emotional conflict um, that you have had that really hasn't been resolved.
1: That is a tendency that we see, Amanda and I, have worked with a lot of family caregivers, people who are uh, in particular many women who are living with older relatives in order to take care of them. And of course that scenario in and of itself can create tension and resentments. Uh, So many women in this country give up paying jobs to take care of older family members And are generally not paid for that time. Tiny pockets of people will manage to get funding here and there. Or the family steps up to the plate and says, here, we're going to compensate you financially for for some of this time. Um, So that can be a resentment right there. They've given up a career. They've given up some of their own self-identity to be a caregiver and as Amanda is pointing out, if on top of that, there have been previous struggles in that relationship. I I can't tell you how many times I've been surprised to see the person who was sort of the black sheep of the siblings become the full-time caregiver and the reenactment of ancient, uh, family, uh, patterns. It's just amazing. I mean, I have seen two grown adults, you know, talking to each other, like they are three and four years old because of their disagreement about how mom should be taken care of. It's just, it's very sad. And I want to, put this out there, it's not impossible to improve things at that point because you are an adult and you do have more insight, hopefully. And um, if you have some intervention, if you have some healthcare providers supporting you, then I think people can make strides, but it's hard, hard work. You know, And that's
2: a great point, Leslie. And I think one thing that can help if it's possible is you know, if you have two siblings that are going to be involved in caregiving or even one's the main caregiver and then the other one is, has a more ancillary role, you know, getting together and communicating and talking about a plan, like who's going to assume what responsibilities, how you're going to communicate. I mean, I think you can really prevent a lot of these conflicts by just communicating clearly upfront and then continuing that through the caregiving process you know, kind of com- coming up with a plan of care, you know, for mom and dad. And, you know, you, you're you responsible for these things, I'm responsible for these things, but being flexible um, in that process, I think can can really help to diffuse some of that conflict.
1: And, and I might bring up, anytime that you can have mom or dad, the elder person involved in that planning, the better. Hmm. It is their life we're talking about, so we've got to make yeah. sure we always
0: put that in there too. Yeah, definitely. And and what about when, I mean, I know you mentioned the um, when you have the older family member living with the younger family. I mean, The dynamics of that, are there times that you recommend that as a solution? Because I know, you know, I think about like ancestrally, right? Like we always lived (laughs) in a community with our older, and I think even the blue zones, you know, the areas of the earth where people live the longest and are healthier, they're living in community with their family and in close community with their family, not far away, which is how we typically do things in the United States. Do you see that that's more beneficial to live with family? Is it more stressful? When do you know, okay, it's time to not do this anymore. (laughs) Like I, I know that's really individualized and it's probably hard for you to make a blanket statement but I'd love to dig into that a little bit.
2: I think it is such a great question. And I think your point that we're not used to that in this country, that's not a part of our culture or our societal norms but people are doing it. People have done it through the pandemic more than ever before. Um, They're they're pulling parents out of nursing homes, even out of assisted living and bringing them home to live with them. Uh, You know, I've never had the experience personally, but I think you have to really prepare yourself. And it depends on how much care your parents need. I mean, if, if you're moving somebody out of a nursing home, they're getting round the clock nursing care. So you have to be able to replace that care if you're bringing somebody home, but families are doing it. And I think that some are successful and others are like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? You know, this is so much harder than I thought it would be. There's home accessibility issues. There's privacy issues, space, care, financial concerns. How are you you going to share in expenses? What if mom or dad needs private care that you have to pay for? Who's going to pay for that? So I think there are. if you can come up with a good plan ahead of time, that will help. But otherwise, I think it's, um, it does work for some families, but I think you just have to kind of go through kind of a pros and cons list, sit down with your older parents and, and, and talk about some of the, uh, the problems that you anticipate, how you're going to deal, especially with privacy issues, I think, and, and safety.
1: And and it's kind of a good point for us to to have a little reality check, too. While it's true that demographically, we have not lived in multi-generational houses for um, a significant amount of time after World War II in this country, many minority cultural groups in the U.S. have always done this have continued to do this. They don't have a choice financially many times. And so we're seeing, uh, you know, Amanda and I just love reading about this. And in real estate news, this is one of the hottest home designs that people are looking for are multi-generational, where there is a separated area you know we used to call it a mother in law suite but now that area could be for your college age or 30 year old child to live in who cannot afford to live on their own because of just the craziness of the the market out there or it's for aging parents or an aging uncle or aunt or cousin that People are looking at this as we've got to do this
0: more than a choice. I love that. And just from personal experience, I mentioned it before, but when, so when I was nine years old, my grandpa died. My grandma, you know, and my parents decided, well, let's build a house that has a separate mother in law suite. At that point, she was in her early 60s. So she's very, I mean, now look, I thought she was so old then, right? But like (laughs) now I'm like, gosh, she was so young and she chose to live with all of us. She had her own separate area with like a kitchen Mm -hmm. and it, it was a very cool design. And, as a child, you know, growing up, I was probably about 6th grade by the time it was finished. Lived there throughout the time in college I got pregnant with my daughter and she was there. She was my support team. And I I had a I really struggled with my mental health from about 8th grade on and I knew also just having that one extra person in my corner, you know, that was something else that was grounding me to the present, to reality, to going to make it through this and I just think about how how wonderful now it was hard. And I can't even imagine my dad dealing with his mother-in-law in that way. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, there's just a, there are a lot of factors that as a kid, I don't, I don't know, you know, and even as an adult now, I'm like, I have no idea what went on that, that drove my parents crazy or even drove her crazy. Right. But it was, it was a really cool way to grow up. And it was, she continued living with us beyond, she helped watch my daughter for me when I started work. I mean, you know, it was just a neat, special thing that I, it was unique to our family, and I'm hoping, I love to see that that continues on for some people, that people are doing that, because I think that there's something really special because we do live in isolation, all of us, in, in many ways in this country. Maybe this will help kind of bring things back to the family system. Yeah, you that's are right. Wow. There are so many win-wins
1: in multi-generational living. Yes, there are some sacrifices for different people in a family system who might lose some privacy, who might lose some financial uh, by supporting an older adult, but the benefits, I think, really do outweigh the negatives for most families. Not every family can do it, of course, we know.
2: Erin, I love your story, and I I was thinking to myself, wow, you all were ahead of your time, and then then I remembered I'd forgotten about this. I did when I was, um, gosh, I was probably 10 or 11, 12. My grandmother moved in with us and lived with us because, um, you know, my grandfather had died. She was on her own. And in, you know, that generation, I mean, it just, you know, financially, she just couldn't manage on her own. So she moved in and it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world. You know, it just sort of seemed like, okay, well, uh, grandma's coming to live with us and, and she ended up, um, dying there in the house with us. I mean, she didn't go to the hospital or go to a nursing home or go to assisted living. Of course, people didn't live as long as they do now. (laughs) You know, we keep people alive for so long. It's almost like they're, you know, people are in this declined state, but they're still living. And so they need a lot more care than she needed. You know, I remember she spent a lot of time in bed, but she was just part of the family.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I gosh, there, there's a lot there that, um, I, it just brings back so many memories. I love hearing that. And I'd love to touch back a little bit, kind of back to where we started the conversation on the mental health aspect of things. And I'd love to know just your tips as we're kind of winding the conversation down for helping our, our aging parents, grandparents, whatever it is, whoever is listening, whoever this applies to. To identify the mental health struggles, where where can we support best without overstepping, without you know crossing any boundaries, but also to know that they are heard and validated because it sounds like that that's a big issue too is that a lot of the older people just don't feel like they're being listened to or validated in this.
2: Yeah, I, I, mean, think I yeah I would say that there's one thing I wanted to mention earlier, and this doesn't work with everybody, but I think using humor is, is really important. Um, you know, not taking things so seriously and, you know, it's very individual, um, humor is, but I just wanted to mention that because that works really great with my dad. Um, and the other thing is just to give people as many choices as you can. So if people have choices, it's, it's more, it's not a matter of, I mean, it's so hard to support older adults when you think they're doing the wrong thing, (laughs) you know, they're doing something that really isn't safe or isn't in their best interest. I think if you give people options, they're much more likely to move, at least move in some direction. Um, so that's probably the advice that I would have. I mean, you know, with Leslie and I worked in this mental health program for older adults and it was my job to get people into the program, I can't even tell you how hard that was. I can't imagine doing the therapy, okay? <laughs> but doing, that was probably easier than what I had to do in some ways. I had to convince people that it was in their best interest to leave their home and come to a mental health program and i think it's better now but i still think there are just so many barriers to treatment i mean leslie and i've talked a lot about uh, teletherapy you know which is really big now older adults are using it but they have to be comfortable with the technology in order to access it so that potential is there, but we've got to get people connected. So I think the teletherapy is a, is, a, is a great idea. And I think, and Leslie can probably speak more to how successful that is, you know, for older adults. But if we can get them comfortable with the technology, I think that's something that's, that does have a lot of potential to help people.
1: I think one thing, if you are, if you are noticing that your parent is older, is to really pay attention and be disciplined yourself about regular communication. Some of us have a weekly phone call these days. Many of us have a a Zoom call. Um, Even if your older parent lives in the same town, make sure you are connecting in a regular way that they know they can expect to hear from you and have a real conversation with you every week. And we know, yes, we know there are wonderful do this daily Bravo, but we also know real life gets in the way of that for many of us. So just do what you can, but don't let it go past a certain amount of time, just like you have, your job responsibilities, and you do your workout, and you do regular things, that has to be one of your regular things. It's not a, oh, spur of the moment, I think I'll call mom. You know that you're going to have a date with your mom and dad at a certain time, if you can, or a certain day, just so that they know they have that connection. And and if you can, really get through the small talk and get to the deeper talk and check in with them in a real way. Like, so how are you sleeping? You know, or, you know, have you gotten over that, that pain that you were having in your elbow? What was that about? You know, just really checking in with them in a, in a more meaningful
0: way. I love that. Now, the question I've got to ask you both the question that I love to ask because, you know, the name of the podcast is Sparking Wholeness. So, if you could give one piece of advice that would spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? Gee, Erin, we have to pick one thing.
2: (laughs) I know there's so many. (laughs) I mean, that is so tough. If I have to just choose one, it would be to stay socially connected. To people. That would be my number one.
1: And I think for myself, I have to make sure I'm sort of a caregiver type, and I'm always really good at worrying about other people. So for my wholeness, I have to check in with myself. And sometimes that finding a quiet space in my house. Even when other people are here or I go outside and breathe some fresh air, which we don't have in Salt Lake City right now, (laughs) but just asking myself, are you there? Oh, yes. What's happening with you? That gives me a sense of wholeness because I need to pull the whole picture together.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that all of us can benefit from that right now uh, during these crazy times for sure. And I, I just appreciate this so much. So, where can people um, find your books and follow you, find more about what it is that you do, your website, all of that information?
2: So, all of our books are on Amazon. We have a website, mindfulaging.com, Facebook page of the same name, Twitter, um, so, and Instagram. It's all under mindful aging. And uh, yeah, all three of our books are available on
0: Amazon. Awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This was such a good conversation. And I think, man, I, I, could, I could dig so much deeper on all of these individual topics. I feel like that was just kind of a broad scope of, of what it is that you guys have been working on for years and years. Um, so I just appreciate you offering a brief little 45 minutes for us. Thank, thank you Erin. You, so real Pleasure. Harry. Yeah. Thank you. It was great to have you on. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.